If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 730. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. If you're on my email list, you're going to get some great coupons coming up. It has turned to November, so we're in the ostensibly in the holiday shopping season. So uh, look out for those coupons for Black Friday or Black November deals, so you can get some great deals at McClanahan Academy. I've got a lot of courses available for purchase, and they make great gifts for yourself or for a family member. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab, or you can go to anchor.fm, you can subscribe there, or you can click on the super thanks button under this video. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. Buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. They also make great gifts. Again, the holiday season is coming up, so... You can just uh, click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get those gifts for that Brian McClanahan show fan in your life, even if it's you, right? So get it for yourself. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Give it a text review if you're an Apple podcast. Or if you're watching it on YouTube, leave that comment for the algorithm. It does help boost the show. And send me those show requests. You want to hear something, send it to me. I do like to see what you want to hear. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and this is a follow-up to the podcast I did yesterday on the Lafayette Lee piece, Dark Age Patriotism. Well, Glenn Elmers, the West Coast Straussian, didn't like it. He didn't like that piece. He didn't like the idea that Lafayette Lee was not in line with the Lincoln myth of America. You see, the Lincoln myth of America is everything. The Lincoln myth of America is where the West Coast Straussians hang their hat. Now, they're going to say this is based on Aristotelianism. It's based on the founding generation. There's some major problems with that position. And one of the most important things, of course, I think that they have to understand is that the United States was not monolithic and never has been. There's never been an American nation. And you see, all these West Coast Straussians are basing their positions on the fact that there's a Lincolnian nation. We know that's not the case. We know if, from David Hackett Fisher, of course, in his Albion Sea, that there were four distinct folkways, very dominant folkways in America in the 17th century and into the 18th century. And so essentially you had four distinct cultures, British cultures in America. Now they were English at one point and then British. Now, of course, you could say, well, they're all English. They all have the, they, there's a lot of commonality there. Well, they wouldn't tell you that. In fact, New Englanders would tell you they're very different from Southerners and vice versa. And Lafayette Lee is writing as a Southern conservative. You see, that's what bothers Glenn Elmers. It's what bothers Michael Anton. It bothers all of them because the South is the antithesis in their mind of America. And even Elmers points that out. 
right? So they have to they have to virtue signal because they have to say, what about slavery? And that, I remember you know a couple of years ago when Anton and I had that exchange in Chronicles and then American Greatness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he basically insinuated because I wasn't in line with the Lincoln myth that somehow I was pro-slavery. Now, this is just stupid. It's stupid because, and this shouldn't even be brought up, right? Are you a leftist? Well, of course they are. In reality, they are. They just don't realize they are, but they are because they're advancing positions that 19th century leftists would have advanced. There's, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. These people are 19th century leftists. And look, when uh, Anton and Kevin Goodsman were on a panel at, um, in Washington, D.C. not long ago, uh, Goodsman gave it to him. I mean, he, he, he said, look, the founding principle of America is not all men are created equal or some lofty idealism. It was, we have independence. Now, what's interesting, I'm going to use uh, Patrick Henry a couple of times in this particular uh, podcast today. Henry does say the revolution was radical. And this is Gordon Wood. I mean, Gordon Wood essentially says the revolution is radical. I would not say the, that the founding generation were as monolithic, even as Wood would insist that they are. But uh, it was radical in that it was a departure. They, they broke away from an absolute monarchy, right? A hereditary monarchy. And that's essentially the radical part of the revolution. But otherwise, there wasn't much radical about it. And Henry, of course, is speaking in radical terms at that point when he's talking about government. He's, he's talking about it in the frame of government, right? So we have this departure from the divine right of kings, from hereditary monarchy, and we establish a republican system, by the way, which, as Elmer says, you can't have republicanism with slavery. Well, that would be news to most of the founding generation. But uh, And we, we can reject that today, of course. But they would have not understood that that assertion. They would have said that's that's not republicanism and slavery are not inconsistent. In their mind, they weren't. Right? We can say they are in the 21st century, but in their mind they weren't inconsistent. The two things. So uh, we have Henry making this statement about radical, a radical revolution. But on the other hand, we know that outside of removing a king the American structure wasn't radically transformed. We know in Virginia there were certain things they tore down, established church, right of primogeniture. There were some things that happened there, but it was confined to Virginia. We know that in South Carolina, for example, or the Carolinas, not a whole lot changed. We know that some states kept their colonial charters in place. So how was that a radical departure from what we had before the revolution? If it was... Well, then everything would have changed. Now, we know that Virginia, of course, adopted a Bill of Rights, a new constitution. In fact, it did it before and started working on this process before the Declaration of Independence. It considered itself to be independent even before the Declaration was uh, issued and signed. And they did have some Lockean positions in it. Now, I'm going to talk about that with Elmers because I think it's important to note what that means in terms of tradition in the mind of an Englishman in the 18th century. All right, so let's get to this Glenn Elmer's piece. The title is Patriotism Rewind. Now, I've talked about Glenn Elmer's before on this podcast. I've gone through some of his stuff, and I'm not a big fan of Glenn Elmer's. I'm not a fan of Glenn Elmer's because I think he's wrong about so many things. He's a Jaffaite, just like he, I mean, he and Michael Anton are tight when it comes to that, right? And Anton 
has this weird habit of saying, my teacher Jaffa, my teacher Harry Jaffa. It's a very strange habit, but it's what he does. So Elmer says, I appreciate the heartfelt patriotism as well as the military service of Lafayette Lee. As discussed in his recent IM 1776 essay, Dark Age Patriotism. In the face of the left's assaults on faith, freedom, and the rule of law, it is essential that all of us on the right unite to defend ourselves. But presumably, we are defending ourselves in the name of something higher and nobler for which our side stands. So we have to have a higher law, an ideal, right? It's not enough, he says, just to believe in community and family. That's not enough. There has to be a higher idea. We need to unite the right. Well, <laughs> the left's going to love that, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, there's Glenn Elmers. He would have been marching in Charlottesville. Um, but we have a higher law, a higher law. Think about just the language itself. Well, who was saying things like that? Seward, the Republicans of the 19th century. There's a higher law than the Constitution. There's a higher law than tradition and place and people. A higher law than that, that we have to achieve and we have to strive to do. Right? A higher law. And it's funny because, of course, the editors at IM 1776 chose to put an image of Abraham Lincoln at the top of this piece, holding the Imperium, because it all comes down to Lincoln. You see? It all comes down to 19th century Republicans, who somehow the West Coast Straussians have, have, have convinced themselves that are conservative, which they weren't. We know it. Because they said it. <laughs> they blasted conservatives. You have uh, Winter Davis out there in uh, Pennsylvania during the war making fun of quote-unquote conservatives because he wasn't a conservative. They weren't conservatives. All of these Republicans, including Abraham Lincoln, were not conservatives. So why would we classify them that as that? Well, because that works into their position where they're not going to be called mean things, supposedly. If Lincoln was a conservative, and all the things they espoused were conservative, and in line with the founders, then the left is a somehow crazy other. They're not really, I mean, who even knows what they are? They're anti-American or un-American or whatever it is. And the paleoconservatives or the southern conservatives or the paleolibertarians, whatever, whatever group they want to lump people who are opposing them into, are, again, antithetical to real American conservatism. But again, these people would not have been conservative in their own day. Now, you can make the case for Jefferson in that way, too. And, I mean, look, Kevin Goodsman does. He says Jefferson's a radical. But his radicalism stopped at Virginia. Again, Jefferson's most important commitment politically was federalism, meaning New England could be as dopey as they wanted, as crazy as they wanted up there, and it didn't have to affect Virginia. Even his letter to the Danbury Baptist makes this clear. We can't do anything about what's going on in Connecticut, and the Danbury Baptist said the same thing. We know that there's nothing that can be done about this from the center. And Jefferson said, well, one day I hope that essentially you have the same principles we have here in Virginia, in Connecticut, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. So Elmer says, human nature is the great obstacle to utopianism. But isn't nature universal? A regime grounded in human nature and natural law can never be merely particular, just as no political community can ever be entirely universal. 
But isn't nature universal? Now, there was a lot of debate even in the founding generation about what this idea of natural law meant. And it goes back, again, to a Lockean position. Now, we'll, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about how important this is in an English tradition, okay? And we'll, we'll look at John Locke in a second. He says, in his essay, Lee reduces our current crisis to a simplistic dichotomy, proposing to reject the realm of ideas in favor of one's people in place. But this doesn't work, Elmer says. Political communities, as Aristotle explained long ago, combine matter and form. A healthy regime needs a moral people with good habits, traditions, and customs, and a set of intellectual principles that articulate ideas of justice and a noble human purpose. A healthy regime needs good habits, traditions, not bad ones. doesn't need bad habits, traditions, and customs. And of course, uh, we'll talk about how Pod Paul Gottfried deals with this in a minute, or not in a minute, in, in tomorrow's episode, I should say. Um, but he, he gets into this, this idea that you have to have good things and reject bad things. And of course, Gottfried says, okay, well, nobody's saying that we're going to have, you know, we're going to practice human sacrifice as the Vikings did, or as the, uh, the Aztecs did. This is, yeah, we're not talking about that. We've come to believe that, uh, there should be limits on central power based on tradition, right? Not on ideas. So Elmer says, the Founders' writings, public and private, are widely available in print and online. When we examine their letters, speeches, proclamations, and resolutions, we find that in their disputes with the British King and Parliament, the colonists defended their traditional privileges as Englishmen up until about 1775-1776. By that point, they had gradually come to see themselves as a separate people, Americans rather than subjects of the British Empire. But see... There's still continuity between the two. And let me explain. I'll, I'll bring up Patrick Henry here. <clears throat> so up until 1775 to 1776, they talked about the rights of Englishmen. But once we get to 1775 and 1776, they didn't do that anymore. Well, that's an amazing statement. Because that's not true. We'll just use the most famous speech, arguably, in this entire period, which of course is Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, which, by the way, was delivered in 1775. Now, what did he say they're fighting for in 1775? Well, I'll tell you, because it's in black and white. It's available online, readily available everywhere online. He says, if we wish to be free... If we mean to preserve and violate those inestimable privileges, but I thought we weren't fighting for privileges by 1775. Nah, something else. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve and preserve, which would mean these privileges are there from tradition, not from some lofty idea, Elmer's, that means that they're still talking about what you say they're not talking about anymore. This is the most famous speech of the entire period. It's what brought Virginia into the cause. But of course, Virginia was thinking of high ideals by 1775. No, they're thinking of this. It's a shocking to me. It's shocking to me 
how someone like Elmers could write that. Who's supposedly so learned in the founding period. and understands he reads all the documents. He reads all the speeches and proclamations. Yet he somehow misses this. In fact, earlier in this speech, Henry says, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is a lamp of experience. What does that mean? Well, that means it's tradition and history. I only guide my feet by tradition and history. Now, he talks about after that. He's saying, well, look, according to experience, we've just been beat on by the British for 10 years. He's drawing continuity between 1775 and, by the way, 1765, where Patrick Henry stood up and basically called King George III a tyrant. And he was denounced for this. But he already said Virginia was independent at that point, 10 years before this. Now, no one agreed with him there, but that's the point he was making. That's the argument he was making. But supposedly, according to Glenn Elmers, nobody was talking about this. Let's just think of the Declaration. What does Jefferson say in the Declaration? Now, this is the big document for the Straussians, right? They love the Declaration. And, of course, when I made the statement that uh, to use the Declaration, they do. And the, the wording was a little awkward because of editing and other things. But to use that as a founding document was, in some ways, incorrect. Now, look, Pauline Meyer in her book, American Scripture has pointed out this was very much a defounding document in a lot of ways. Not a founding document, but a defounding document. However, what I was getting at was this lofty idealism in the Declaration. Now, of course, the Straussians would say, well, wait a second here. In the very first sentence, they say, when we have, uh, we have the laws of nature, and nature's God entitled them, right? We have a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them, right? So we have people that are separating, and this is natural law that allows us to do it. We have a natural right, in other words, to be independent. So they would say, well, there it is, right? There's natural law right in the Declaration. Okay. I wouldn't argue that that statement is there, that they would say there is, there are some natural rights, Okay, but where do those natural rights come from? And they would say, if, well, the, the response would be, well, they come from God. We know that Jefferson wasn't too much of a Christian. He was more of a deist, believed in the philosophy of Christ. And you could say that, well, the position of the British at this point, or the English before this, had been that they had achieved these rights through centuries of tradition through centuries of tradition, and that is essentially how they would say it happened. Not just gifted on high, but through struggle, right? Through blood, in many cases, they had achieved these things. So then, of course, the most famous line, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? So this is natural rights. They're endowed by the creator with these things. So the, again, here's the natural rights position. But the thing is, in this particular paragraph, Jefferson goes back to history. Jefferson goes back to history in the Declaration, even in this paragraph. He says, prudence indeed 
will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. So this is human nature, right? I mean, we shouldn't just wake up today and decide we're going to change the government and then naturally we're people aren't boat rockers. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. Right? So this goes back to the to the idea that the ancient constitutions, their privileges have been violated over the last 10 years or longer. So there's no hope now because he says the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, the facts be submitted to a candid world. Now, if you understand that this document is is copying the English Bill of Rights of 1688 in structure, you see the continuity between the tradition of John Locke, and the English Bill of Rights 1688, and the Declaration. So there's Lockean principles at work here. But Locke was basing his beliefs at that point on long-established traditions in England, as Lafayette Lee pointed out. The country party. Things that have been established in opposition to a tyrannical monarchy. Centralization. That's the whole point. This is all about asserting the rights of Englishmen. Or you could say the Anglo-American tradition, which is what Michael Anton, who I'll talk about on uh, Thursday, contests. There is no such thing. It's what Glenn Elmers essentially is contesting. But we inherit this. It doesn't matter if you're not from England, if you're not an Anglo-Saxon. You inherit this as you become American, right? You inherit this Anglo-American tradition, and thank God we do. Because I wouldn't want to be in the French tradition or the German tradition. No. But this is essentially what they're doing. And I'll talk about that with Anton a little bit more. But they're, they're basically making the American War for Independence kind of like the French Revolution. And you just can't do that. As you know, Gary Will said, Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. So you look at all these charges and you look at how this, what, you're, what they're claiming the king did here. And these are not natural rights. These are the liberties and privileges that they have been given as Englishmen that are being violated. Okay, so understand that. So, this statement that by this point they had gradually come to see themselves as separate people, well, they did, but that didn't mean that they lost that connection to the Anglo, what's now the Anglo American tradition or the English tradition. They hadn't lost that. They weren't, well, we're starting here. This is entirely new. No, it wasn't. We know it wasn't. Because the structure, even at that point, wasn't really entirely new. Particularly in the states, many states, it wasn't entirely new. Concluding that a complete separation was required to secure their liberty, and that, they, that a war of revolution would, be, would probably be necessary to achieve independence, they began to adopt more radical arguments. 
more radical arguments. Hmm. So Locke was radical, according to Glenn Elmers. When Locke wrote one of the ancient constitutions that Patrick Henry and others would refer to, which is the English Bill of Rights, somehow that's radical? Locke wasn't considered radical at all. Drawing on modern social contract theories, especially John Locke, and influenced by popular writers such as Thomas Paine, they, they turn clearly and decisively toward emphasizing the natural equality and individual rights they possessed as human beings. Now, what's amazing about that, if you're going to say Tom Paine, which, look, uh, Tom Paine was important, but by the 1780s, Tom Paine was essentially an outcast. He had been rejected almost entirely. Yes, when he wrote Common Sense, which was an indictment of the king. And yes, when he wrote The American Crisis, which was an indictment of absolute power, essentially the king. There were people that got on board with that. But once Locke became a much more radical individual and his writings turned in that direction, people didn't believe it as much anymore. At all. I mean, he's writing both of those things early in the conflict. As he writes more and more radical stuff, Tom Paine becomes persona non grata in many ways. In fact, he's left in France as he goes over there and thinks that the United States is like this French Revolution. He goes over there and he gets thrown in jail, and Washington is not sure if he wants to bail him out. Right? I mean, because Tom Paine saw the French Revolution as a natural extension in his mind of the American War for Independence, which the Americans essentially, even Jefferson, rejected. Not initially, but once it turned nasty, which it was bound to do, you see, they put the brakes on this stuff in the 1780s in America. That's the whole point of the Constitution, to put the brakes on some of the things they thought were going a little bit overboard with this with these lofty theories. That's not what they wanted. So where is the radicalism of the founding generation? You're not going to find it for the most part. You're going to see them saying, wait a second here, I think we made a mistake more than anything else. By action, if not words. If they no longer consider themselves Bridges subjects, how could they continue to appeal to the rights of Englishmen? Well, because it's the Anglo-American tradition, and they continue to do it. They continued to do it, right? They still thought of themselves and inheriting the common law tradition, for example. If they rejected everything in England, well, then why did they adopt that in many states? I mean, see, it doesn't make any sense. What Elmers is saying here is we have a radical break and everything is new in America. But we know that's not the case. We know George Washington was conservative. We know John Adams was conservative. Jefferson was conservative in that he believed in federalism, which is the most important political principle we have, because it protected communities from scheming centralizers, from innovators like Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, who you can say are conservative. Maybe Russell Kirk isn't so sold on Hamilton. Jay was certainly conservative when it came to religion and society, but Jay was also a nationalist, and we know the founding generation, to a man, essentially rejected nationalism. We know it because they said we're not creating a national government. Even an argument that Elmer thinks, I got you, look at this. He interprets, he interprets the, the quote wrong, incorrectly, right? He, he doesn't even get it right. 
The leading American statesmen, as well as, pe- as the people, came to reject not just the authority of King George, but divine right monarchy as such. Okay, that's true. They did that. They rejected divine right monarchy. They rejected uh, artificial aristocracy. And they didn't really want an elected king. Now, what's really funny about that, yeah, overall they did. That was the position. But did not Hamilton in June of 1787 stand up and say we need an elected king? Was not John Adams accused of being a monarchist? They were. So did everyone reject this idea of a king entirely? Not really. They might have said some things publicly that would make you believe that, but privately, not all the time. And of course, even Adams's advocacy of a potentially a you know monarchy in some form or another was very public. George Washington rejected the idea as a Republican, but of course, Glenn Elmer says George Washington can't be a Republican because he was a slave owner. Because they see political authority as grounded in the sovereignty of the people who established legitimate government on the basis of consent. Well, that was a... I mean, even in England, there was still discussion of this. There's consent of the governed. The parliament having authority and other things was based on some of these rights that they talk about. The chief evidence for this is the Declaration of Independence signed on July 4, 1776 by 56 delegates to the Continental Congress representing every state. Among the signers was the famously sober John Adams, who actually served on the drafting committee. Yeah, I just went over the declaration. It's very conservative. It's very conservative and restrained in some ways. And it's very much in line with the English tradition. It's just uh, somehow he misses that. The declaration, with its ringing endorsement of equal natural rights, was immediately and thereafter understood as the, found, as the founding document was immediately and thereafter understood as the founding document. With its ringing endorsement, did everyone focus on that, though? Was that the real part of the Declaration? And remember, Jefferson stole that line, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which were stolen from the English Bill of Rights. Right? Jefferson stole it from George Mason. So, uh... Did everyone necessarily believe that? We know they didn't because, again, action and practice didn't didn't reflect that they all believed this position at all. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to act on it. And the founding generation didn't really act on it that much. Years later, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, as trustees for the University of Virginia, discussed what text should be included as part of the school's law curriculum. They assigned Locke's second treatise, and Algeron Sidney's Discourses on Government as authoritative sources for the general principles of liberty and the rights of man. Uh, by the way, both English, Englishmen, right? Uh, in the Anglo-American tradition, they didn't pick uh, some kind of American philosopher on this. English philosophers. They then turned to the best guides for the distinctive principles of government of our state and of that of the United States, the first of which was the Declaration of Independence as the fundamental act of union of these states. Now, look at what Elmer's then he says, it remains today the first of the organic laws of the United States and the U.S. Code. That was added in the 19th century, by the way. It wasn't considered as an organic law in the U.S. Code until the late 19th century. 
But what did Jefferson and Madison say it was? It was an act of union of these states. In other words, they didn't say this is an act of ideology, an act of political principles. It was an act of union. Principles of the government of our state and that of the United States. So this was an act of union of these states. Okay? So that's the only thing they focused on there. The side, essentially the last paragraph. <laughs> that's what they're talking about there. The last paragraph. Not, not the second, but the last. George Washington had the declaration read aloud to his troops on July 9, 1776, and the nation's birthday was commemorated every July 4th right from the beginning. The nation's birthday. Well, that's not how it was described. And in fact, some people didn't really celebrate July 4th. Kevin Goodsman again has pointed this out. You had factions. Some people supported Washington's birthday, some people July 4th. The Federal Republic, but not nation. When the mayor of Washington, D.C., was planning a major celebration of the Declaration's 50th anniversary in 1826, he invited the two signers still alive, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, to be distinguished guests of honor. Both were too old and infirm to intend, and in fact, they both died on that day. So and then he doesn't say that, but that's what happened. Uh, Goodsman again thinks Jefferson committed suicide, but regardless. What about other documents? The Federalist Papers explains the legitimate government is instituted when the people, quote, cede to it some of their natural rights. Federalist number two. Who wrote that? Who wrote Federalist number two? That's a big question because it explains who might have said this, right? So who is the author of Federalist number two? Well, John Jay, of course. John Jay is the author of Federalist two. And it's important to note that because John Jay was more of a nationalist than just about anybody else in America. And by the way, John Jay, uh, well, he, he only wrote a few of the essays, and John Jay wasn't really that well-liked. John Jay didn't speak for the founding generation. And the Federalist essays weren't really that popular or important, even when they were written. He then goes on to discuss several specific rights throughout and in Federalist 84, well, who wrote that one? Who wrote Federalist 84? Well, that would be Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> so he picks two nationalists to define what the founding generation thought. And of course, we'll get into this when he gives some quotes. Federalist 84 opposes the proposal for a Bill of Rights by affirming that the Constitution is, is itself, in every rational sense, and in every useful purpose, a Bill of Rights. Well, Hamilton did say that. Uh, there's very little in that particular document other than you know, the, the uh, writ of habeas corpus and some of the other liberties that are included in it. There's very little there that you could say mirrored what you would have thought would have been a Bill of Rights, which is why it was addressed. But of course, the real argument against the Bill of Rights, not what Hamilton said here, is that the state constitutions already had them. So we don't need another layer of that at the center. The states can protect what they want or not protect what they want because we have a federal republic. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787 secures the rights of religious liberty, habeas corpus, and trial by jury, as well as general protections for the just preservation of rights and property. It also outlaws slavery. It also outlaws slavery as an antithetical to republicanism. Does it say that? <laughs> Does it say it's antithetical to republicanism? But that because in 1787, that wasn't the argument that people were generally making. 
So then he gives some quotes. He says, uh, similar language and arguments appear constantly throughout the founder's speeches, letters, and other writings. For example, Alexander Hamilton, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature and by the hand of the divinity itself. This is the farmer refuted. Just saying it's not about tradition. It's not about the rights of Englishmen. This is a lofty thing, right? It's something bigger than that. George Mason, that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. And so I mentioned Jefferson copied that into the Declaration. What's interesting about that, of course, is George Mason considered himself a Republican. He was a large slave owner. And by the way, he said the problem with the Constitution is that it kept alive the international slave trade while reducing slavery itself in the states, at least in his mind it was going to do it, which he said was the opposite of what we should be doing because domestic slavery was a good institution, whereas the slave trade was a bad thing. That's missed in how Mason argued these positions. George Washington, the foundation of our empire, was not laid in the gloomy age of ignorance and superstition, but in an epoch when the rights of mankind were better understood and more clearly defined than any at any former period. Circular to the States, 1783. And then, of course, John Quincy Adams. This is a stretch. He's saying he's a founder. He was like 12 during the founding period. Same age as Andrew Jackson. They weren't founders. They were kids. It's like saying a kid right now is somehow part of this political age. They're not. So, But anyways, he brings up um, John Quincy Adams. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States are parts of one consistent whole, founded upon one and the same theory of government, expounded in the writings of Locke, but have never been before, never, ne- but had never before been adopted by a great nation in practice. There are yet, even this day, many speculative, uh, speculative objections to this theory. Even our own country, there are still philosophers who deny the principles asserted in the Declaration as self-evident truths, who deny the natural equality and inalienable rights of man, who deny that the people are the only legitimate source of power, who deny that all just powers of government are derived from the consent of the governed. Neither your time nor perhaps the cheerful nature of this occasion permit me here to enter upon the examination of this anti-revolutionary theory. Well, this is 1839, by the way, and uh, <laughs> Adams is playing a little fast and loose with some things. Um, when you look at the structure of government, sure, that the states are independent. Yeah, this is a declaration. The Constitution maintained a federal republic, sure. But the Constitution has no, no Lockean ideology in it. It's not there. And then you get, of course, a funny line to me. Moreover, as demonstrated by Harry Jaffa, I'm surprised he didn't say by my teacher Harry Jaffa, it was Michael Anton, he would have said that, decades ago. The state constitutions adopted during the founding era also echoed these principles using the same Lockean phrases, and of course, he gets into Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Georgia. The Georgia one is funny, he says, Georgia's legislature was apparently still angry at Great Britain when drafting its state constitution in 1777, writing that the king's actions quote, repugnant to the common rights of mankind hath obliged the Americans as freemen to oppose in such oppressive measures and to assert the rights and privileges that are entitled by the laws of nature and of, of nature and reason. Now, um, repugnant to the common rights of mankind hath obliged the Americans as freemen. Now, of course, you could say, well, he's not appealing to Englishmen there. They're not appealing to Englishmen at all. 
They're appealing to something else. But these are as freemen, and those rights of freemen have been established by the English 500 years before this, right? over, over time. This is important to understand, the continuity there with history. Of course, then Elmer's, they, see, this is where the Straussians run into problems, because then they have to qualify this. Now, as a leftist, I could see that and say, yeah, well, I mean, that's pretty lofty language right there. Well, this would mean rights, all kinds of rights. But then Elmer says, none of this means the founders intended to secure the, the natural rights of the whole human race. The American people established free government only for themselves, which is as far as their authority extended. Nor should the emphasis on rights be understood to diminish the role of moral virtue and religious faith, which is not only desirable, but absolutely essential for the success of self-government. So uh, he's saying, well, wait a second here. We have to qualify this. We have to stay, stay one to stop, which is true. I mean, they didn't, they didn't look at this in lofty terms. What he's basically doing is arguing against himself here. Because if these are lofty natural rights, then they should apply to everything. This was always pointed out as people started criticizing the founding generation and what they were saying. He said, I could but won't quote many passages from the founding area explaining on, expanding on Washington's statement that the uh, propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself had, has ordained. And then, of course, we get to Lincoln. And this is the turn, right? So... Lincoln did not invent the language of equality and natural rights, nor is he the source of contemporary neoliberal imperialism. In fact, he clearly demonstrates that the founders' understanding of political equality, which he scrupulously followed, was the opposite of today's egalitarian social engineering and government-imposed equity. So you can't, you can't point to Lincoln over this. There's no, this is, they gave bristle. Whenever you bring up the, the Gettysburg Address and say, this is the turning point, well, you can't say that. He didn't invent this. He's not a, he's not, he's, this isn't neoliberal imperialism. Well, it is, actually. It all is. I mean, it's where it comes from. The founders, Lincoln explained, did not mean to say that all men were equal in color, size, intellect, moral developments, or social capacity. They defined with tolerable distinctness in what respects they did consider all men created equal. Equal in certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I, I mean, it's, that's word salad. Well, then define those things. And so the left will define it. Okay, so what is happiness? What is, what is happiness? Well, then that's equity, right? Happiness would have the same stuff. That means happiness. So, you see, you can't stop there. Lincoln ushered in this stage of uh, egalitarian utopianism. By far, it's Lincoln. It's the turning point. Lincoln is simply elaborating what James Madison says in The Federalist, that political equality is meant to liberate individual industry and natural excellence, and thus the protection of different and unequal fa uh, faculties of acquiring property is the first object of government. There's not a word in Lincoln's writings about forcibly extending the American understanding of liberty throughout the world. No, but they did it, right? So if Lincoln didn't say it, we know that Seward was wanting to get involved in Cretan independence because the, the path of liberty was there for everyone to follow. This happened. The Republicans did it. It doesn't matter if Lincoln said it. It's what they did. Look at their actions. So where does the problem come from? If not Lincoln and the founders, what is the source of the contemporary left's dogmatic obsessions? Well, for the first century of the United States, every leading American statesman professed allegiance to the Constitution. It was not until the late 19th century 
with the introduction of progressivism that this changed. Woodrow Wilson was the first American president to publicly reject the Founders' Constitution, and he did so in the name of modern, specifically German, philosophy. Well, I would say that's not true. In fact, Lincoln was the first person to reject, publicly reject the Founders' Constitution. He did it willingly by suspending habeas corpus himself by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. All of that was rejecting the Founders' Constitution. And he was called out for it in his own time. So how this is where I don't... I mean, Elmer's... This is, this is fascinating to me. If we're looking for a domestic villain, the progenitor of our bureaucratic ruling elites who hate traditional America, we, much, we will find a much better candidate in Wilson and his progressive allies. Well, I mean, Wilson is horrible, right? But Lincoln, you have to go back to Lincoln. Wilson saw the Constitution as checks and balances as a radical defect in our federal system, which needed to be corrected on the basis of our superior modern understanding. Mankind had evolved, biologically, morally, and politically, according to the progressives, and so they sought to overturn both the moral conditions of a free society and what the progressive thinker John Dewey called the rigid doctrine of natural rights in favor of rule by academically trained experts. Here are the seeds of our ideological regime, as well as the global adventurism of to spread democracy, for which Wilson is so notorious. But you see, you go back to the Republicans, they were doing the exact same thing. Republicans were not America firsters, right? At all. The Democrats were, but not the Republicans. And what's amazing about this is, I mean, again, Elmers has a big board in his eye. He can't see the first part of this essay, how inconsistent he is. You go up to the top, we have to have a higher law. There's a higher law than everything. And so all Wilson is saying, yeah, there's a higher law, right? There's a higher law. Any attempt to recover constitutional self-government must begin by repudiating this progressive introduction of German state theory into American politics. This cannot be accomplished by retreating to, into anti-rational nostalgia. Anti-rational. Look, if anybody's not rational, it's these people. It, it, these people are not, Elmers and Anton aren't rational. And they aren't rational because they have this dopey ideology that's based on a myth. It's not rational at all. An objection to the tyranny of abstract principles, values, and ideas, Lee's argument puts in question the West's entire philosophical tradition, including the philosophers of Greece and Rome, and even the intellect itself. Abstract principles, values, and ideas. He's just saying there's a tradition. And again, Gottfried, which I'll talk about tomorrow, just blasts that statement apart. In one, in one paragraph, it's great. Here's my plea to spirited traditionalists and patriots like Lee. Forget the anti-intellectualism. Here's my plea. Here is my hectoring. It should say, here is my hectoring. <laughs> because at the end, it's a hector. Forget the anti-intellectualism, the, the talk indulged by young people of the new right about becoming pirates or the historic privileges of Anglo-Saxons isn't helpful. Tell a plumber in Ohio that the problem with the Democrats is that Joe Biden doesn't respect our rights as Englishmen and see how far that goes. But that's not what we do, right? That's a, that's, that's a straw man. That's a silly argument. It doesn't even, I mean, is Lee an anti-intellectual? No. In fact, it's a very intellectual statement. And what he's saying is not anti-intellectual. In fact, it's based on a very strong, traditional intellect that goes back hundreds of years. Would you say that uh, 
Calhoun was an anti-intellectual? Absolutely not. But then, of course, of course, he'll get into that here in a second. Forget the revisionism about the founding. Leave that to the New York Times and the 1619 Project. That's one of the funniest statements in the whole thing. Because essentially, these people are revising the founding. As, again, Gary Will said, Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. There was a turning point with Lincoln. That's not, revolu- that's, that's not revision. These people are the revisionists. The, the West Coast Straussians are the revisionists. And they're in line with the New York Times and the 1619 Project. Because you know what? The New York Times and the 1619 Project believes in the proposition nation myth. They say it. They're on the same page. This is the funniest part of the whole essay. Forget right-wing Hegelianism and historical determinism, which sees our fate as an inevitable result of the Enlightenment. We are free because the mind possesses reason and can discern our common human nature, which is the only basis of just government, according to Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, Washington, and Lincoln. <laughs> the best form of traditionalism today recognizes and embraces the most fundamental ground of the great American tradition, which, according to the West Coast Straussians, would be leftism. Not conservatism, but leftism. As I mentioned yesterday, republicanism, constitutionalism, and federalism. Three keys, right? That's not what the West Coast Straussians would say. I'm glad to stand alongside Lafayette Lee and I am 1776 in a practical alliance to fight woke tyranny. But I would encourage them, let me tell you what you need to do, to join us and adopt the traditional American patriotism centered on the Declaration of Independence as the most authentic and most powerful expression of the American mind. I would encourage them to join us. How about no? (laughs) I'll just say, how about no? Because you're wrong, and you're going to lead to the left, right? So, no. How about you join us and drop this dopey love affair with Abraham Lincoln, who's wrong, and was pointed out to be wrong, and everyone knows radicalize the United States, transform the United States, shredded the Constitution, created an entirely new America, the Republicans were open about saying it, and realized that that America, Lincoln's America, is not the Founders' America. That Lincoln's Constitution is not the Founders' Constitution. That would be a good thing. How about you join us, Elmers, and wake up? How about you join and get rid of your anti-intellectualism? Because that's what you're doing. How about you stop cherry-picking? That'd be a good idea. How about you actually understand things in their historical context? That would be a good idea, too. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 